Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We all love a good story, right? Whether it's a love story or an action story, a historical narrative, maybe a good bit of fiction. Uh, we, our, our lives are surrounded by stories. Sometimes, though, these stories are meant to, to teach us something, to teach us a lesson. They go beyond just entertainment. <clears throat> Some stories... Uh, whether it's the nursery rhymes from our childhood or the allegorical uh, fantasy fictions of today. Uh, these stories use word pictures to teach us lessons. Jesus was a master storyteller. Throughout his ministry, he used storytelling as a common method of teaching and, and getting his point across. Now, we call these stories parables. Uh, they're some of the best-known teachings of Jesus, from the parable of the Good Samaritan to the parable of the prodigal son. Even unbelievers are familiar with many of these stories, many of these parables. But these parables uh, served a greater purpose than just entertaining people, just to, uh, you know, get them uh, to, to, to feel good. They served the purpose of teaching an important lesson. In our text this morning, Jesus uses another parable to teach uh, an important lesson to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. Now, as you may remember, last week, we discussed the narrative in which the Jewish leaders questioned the authority of Jesus. They came and said, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? <clears throat> and Jesus, through a question of his own, unmasked the hypocrisy of these leaders and revealed that he's the Son of God. Well, Jesus immediately follows with a, with a parable in order to further reveal the danger that the Jewish leaders were in and to provide for us some, some very needed, uh, great, and special promises. So let's look at this parable today, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had, sent, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
So we're going to examine this parable in three parts. The first, we'll examine the parable itself, look at it, see what it's about. Then we'll seek to understand the message of the parable. What was the lesson Jesus was trying to get across through this parable? And then we'll conclude by seeking to apply the parable to our lives today. So let's begin by expounding this parable out, talking about what is this parable about? He begins by giving us this story about this man who built a vineyard and then rented it out and sent a succession of servants to collect from it. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from, some of, uh, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. Now, this parable would have been a a real-to-life story in first century Israel. It would have been something that, that they would have understood. Surrounding Jerusalem and throughout the country, the wealthy of the land had purchased much of the land. And they, in turn, then had rented out the land to others to farm. And... Here in this case, the wealthy owner, he prepared the land to be used as a winery. And then he found a farmer to whom he rented the land, these tenants, it's these people he made a contract with to tend the vineyard. And in return, they would give him a a portion of the harvest. This was a common commercial transaction. And It had a large capital investment by this wealthy landowner to build the wall and build the tower and plant the vineyard and get it all prepared. And the normal method of payment was for an agreed proportion of that crop to be delivered to the owner. In the case of a new vineyard, it would be at least four years before a good harvest could come. And Apparently, through those four years, the tenants began to feel like they owned the land. They hadn't seen the owner for four years. They'd done the work. They began to feel like it was their land that they were working on. The time came for the crop to be delivered, and the owner arranged for a servant to go and to collect it. And and even this word sent, it's the word from which we get the word apostle. It means to be sent with the authority of the one doing the sending. So it was as if the owner himself came, but the tenants didn't agree. Instead, they beat up this servant. They mistreated him, and they sent him back without the payment. The owner apparently was a very long-suffering man. He sent another servant. This one they beat and insulted as well. It says they treated him shamefully. It means to dishonor him or to insult him. The third servant, he sends a third servant. This one They killed him. He didn't even make it back. They murdered this servant. We're we're told that a long succession of servants followed, each one being mistreated in a similar manner. Finally, the owner had had enough, and he sent his son, verse 4, 
He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, when you read Scripture, you need to be aware of elements of the narrative, elements of the text of Scripture that you're reading that catch you off guard, that are surprising, that, that don't seem to fit. Because these elements often indicate the purpose or the main idea that the writer is trying to get across. In our text this morning, this is a surprising element. If you're the owner, first off, would you send multiple servants? But he did. And after he sent all these servants and they've been abused and killed, what would you expect him to do? I know if it was me, I would expect that he would come and marshal some forces and the law and take it back. He, he, would, he would by force punish those wicked men. The last thing I would think about doing would, would be put my children into that circumstance. To the situation where these people have been beat and killed. But this is what happens. Those listening would have reacted to this element with surprise as well. They, they would have expected the owner would muster an armed force with the backing of the authorities and take back the vineyard. To send his son would be shocking. It would feel foolish to do that. And following the story, the outcome is predictable. The sun comes, the, the people see this, and they expect that if they kill the sun, the owner will finally give up and the land will be theirs. And so they do that. They kill the sun. Finally, the owner's had enough, and he finally responds how we'd expect him to respond. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus phrases this as a question. How will the owner respond? And he informs us of the obvious answer. The, the owner is going to come with an armed force. He's going to kill the tenants and he's going to rent the land out to others who are going to actually pay what they owe. Now this is certainly a, an interesting story, perhaps an entertaining story, but the purpose of this parable is to teach us a lesson. What is the lesson? What lesson is Jesus attempting to teach us? Well, let's move then to try and explain this parable, the lesson Jesus is trying to get across. Now, when dealing with a parable, there's a few things we need to keep in mind. First, while parables are fiction, they are real-to-life stories. In other words, although they didn't happen, they could have happened. They're, they're real-to-life that's what separates a parable from other forms of stories. Second, not everything in the parable has to mean something. So not everything means something in the parable. The point is to get a main specific point across. That's important because it means you don't have to sit and dissect every aspect of the parable. What does the wall represent? What does the tower represent? What do the grapes represent? We don't have to do that. The goal is to get a specific point across. And as a result, we need to seek that point, not dissect every hidden meaning of every part. And, and what that means, though, is that those things that mean something will be 
obvious. It'll be apparent that they mean something. And third, that parables are given for a specific lesson, not for entertainment. So, with that in mind, what is Christ trying to teach with this parable? Well, as we begin to break it apart, its allegorical features, I think, will become very obvious. The vine, the vineyard, was a picture of Israel. The owner will see as God the Father. The, the servants will be the various prophets that Jesus has sent to Israel over time. And the Son is Jesus. So with this in mind, we'll begin with the lesson that Israel rejected Christ. See, the vineyard is Israel. Where do we get this from? Well, often in the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as a vineyard. One might think of uh, perhaps Psalm 80, 8 through 18. It begins with the phrase, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. An obvious reference to Israel leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. Perhaps we might think of uh, Isaiah 27, 2 to 6. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns or briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Again, referring to Israel as a vineyard. Maybe we think of Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you, Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned a degenerate and become a wild vine? Maybe Hosea 10 verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields fruit. See, Israel as God's vineyard is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. And the listening audience, these leaders of Israel and the people in the temple, would have recognized right away that Jesus was talking about Israel. But the spiritual leaders would have immediately been thinking of a different specific passage as Jesus began his story. You see, Jesus' narrative, the wording of it, echoes the introduction to a different song by Isaiah. His song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. And here Isaiah presents an allegory explicitly demonstrating God's disappointment with Israel. He says in Isaiah 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. And here's where the wording echoes. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as a well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines in which he delights. They would have thought of this text, where Isaiah calls out, the Lord through Isaiah calls out Israel as his vineyard. 
who has not accomplished what he set them out to do. And as a result, he's going to destroy them. And in this parable, Jesus reminds them of that. They just questioned his authority, and he reminds them, you haven't been following your authority. So the vineyard and the tenants represent God's people, Israel. This points very clearly then to the identity of the servants, of the owner who is God. The servants would represent the people God had sent to them over and over and over to call them back. The prophets. In fact, they were often referred to as God's servants in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 7.25, Ezekiel 38.17, Daniel 9.6, Amos 3.7, Zechariah 1.6, all refer to these prophets as God's servants. And over the course of history, God sent many prophets to Israel with God's claims and calls for obedience. But more often than not, Israel not only did not listen but abused, mistreated, and even killed these messengers from God. In Isaiah 19, or excuse me, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah lamented the fact that Israel had destroyed the altars of God and killed the prophets sent from God. And his bemoaning is, I am the only one left. In 2 Chronicles 20, uh, 36, 15 and 16, the, message, the, the, the statement is made, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. The second century Christian father Justin Martyr informs us that Isaiah was sawed in half by a wooden saw. Jeremiah records that he was constantly mistreated, falsely accused of treason, thrown in a pit. And, and church history tells us that he was, uh, according to tradition, stoned to death by the Jews. He records the, Jeremiah records the fate of another prophet, Uriah. Jeremiah 26, verse 20. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jeho Jehoiakim sent to Egypt... Certain men, and they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his body into the burial place of the common people. Ezekiel, he faced similar hatred and hostility. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected. Micaiah was struck in the face, beat up in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 22. The writer of Hebrews provides this epitaph about the prophets. Hebrews 11.35. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They were, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And this brings us then to the surprising 
element, the sending of the beloved son, perhaps the most obvious aspect of this parable, God's beloved sons, uh, son. The original readers would have read through the entire gospel in one sitting, right? We, we tend to break it up by chapters and verses. The original readers would have sat down with this large scroll and read from beginning to end. And when they did that in that sitting, they would have recalled the voice from heaven addressing Jesus as God's beloved son back in Mark 1, 11. Uh, just a few chapters prior to this, in Mark 9, 7, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God did it again. This is my beloved son. So as they got to this point, and it says he sent his beloved son, they would have immediately identified this as Jesus. And while the chief priests and scribes and elders may not have known about the heavenly voice there in Mark 1 or Mark 9, they had definitely heard about Jesus' supernatural miracles. In the preceding text, they just challenged Jesus. By what authority are you doing this? And Jesus responded with the implication that he'd come from God the Father. So all those in the audience that day would have understood Jesus was referring to himself as the Son. Of course, to our mind comes texts like John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was also prophesying that he would be killed. There in verse, nine, uh, verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The writer of Hebrews comments on this very fact. Hebrews 13, and so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. But this was all the plan of God. God used even the sinful actions of Israel to procure our salvation. Israel rejecting Christ was not something that God was surprised by. This was all part of his sovereign plan. It's an important reminder to us even in these days that God uses bad things, God uses surprising things, God even uses sin for his own purposes and for his own glory. We're reminded in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. See, this surprising element of God sending his son ought to surprise us as well. But it ought to fill us with amazing thankfulness for his grace that he would choose, although we abused his grace, to send his son to cover our sin that we might have life through him. The son came. Jesus was mistreated and murdered so that we can have a relationship with God and have our sins covered and become citizens of heaven. But while Israel rejected Christ, God exalted Christ. You see, his death's not the end of the story. Verse 10, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus 
interprets the parable with a quotation from Psalm 118, 22, and 23. One of the Hillel Psalms, one of the Psalms that they would have been quoting in the Passover time. At their feast, they would quote Psalm 118. Another section of that very psalm, verses 25 and 26, is the quotations that the people were crying out when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Remember, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. It's from that same psalm. This passage of scripture is also one that the New Testament uses often to refer to the exaltation of Christ, that his death was not a mistake. Instead, it was the foundation for something incredible. The stone the builders Israel rejected as useless has become the most important stone in the building. We see it in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, <clears throat> you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offered, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Romans 9. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. The they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock which makes them fall, and he who believes in him will never be put to shame. He's reminding them, I'm going to do something great through this stone. What's he talking about? As we'll see in a little bit, he's talking about building up this citizenry of the kingdom of God. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, a multitude redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to praise Him for all eternity. This entity called the church. And God is highly exalted in Him. Finally, we note that God replaced Israel. We see this in verse 9. What then will the owner do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, we need to note right off the bat that this word owner, most translations translate this word as owner, but it's actually best probably to translate this word as Lord. It's that same Greek word, kurios, meaning Lord. It, it, it's at this point that the picture part of the parable is giving way to reality. Jesus is the Lord of all things. And the killing of the tenants may, not, may be a not-so-veiled prophecy about the coming destruction of Jerusalem or the eternal fate of those religious leaders. The giving of the vineyard to others is a picture of the new creation, the church. Paul refers to this idea in Romans chapter 11, in which Paul informs us that some of the natural branches of the bush of God's people were broken off and new branches, the church, were grafted in. And, and what this means is that the church is now God's people. Why is this important? Because as you read scripture, the promises to God's people are for us. We are his people. But Paul also informs us that Israel will be brought in again. We don't cast them off. So, so what does this all mean for us? I mean, so far, this has been kind of heady, this lesson so far. Let's bring it home. What, what does this mean for you today as you go home? Well, in this final portion of the message, let's make some applications. I think the first most obvious application in this text is that God is long-suffering. Throughout this narrative, we must note God's long-suffering. 
When Israel rejected the prophets, God sent more to them. Over and over and over, God reached out to Israel in spite of her lack of repentance. Over and over, he called for her to come back. And even when she was deported, God brought her back again. And when all hope seemed lost, God sent his son to purchase our salvation. The long-suffering of God is a theme throughout Scripture. In Exodus 34, as Moses is seeking a vision of God, he says, God, I want to see you. And God hides him in a rock and passes before him and lets him catch a view of his glory. And as he passes, this is the statement. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm 86, 15, the psalmist writes, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm 103.13, the psalmist writes, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, sometimes we feel as though God cannot possibly forgive or change us. That we've gone too far. That it's just too bad and we're beyond hope. Sometimes we look at our culture around us. And we think it's just gotten too bad. And it's beyond hope. We see the atrocities. And we wonder, where is God? But my friend, this is not the case. God is ready to extend mercy. God continually reaches out to you. Even this morning, he's reaching out to you. Will you respond in repentance and faith? Will you live for this merciful God? He sends servant after servant after servant, and even his own son. Will he not care for you? God is long-suffering. Second, though, I think we note that God is sovereign. Note how Jesus concludes this parable. He makes this quote about how God will exalt him. But then in verse 11, he says, The Lord has done this. What has the Lord done? He's anticipated the rejection of Israel. He has sent servant after servant after servant and his own son for his glory in his sovereign plan. None of it was a mistake. Israel's rejection of the prophets and of Christ was not a surprise to God. Israel's downfall and destruction was not a surprise to God. All of this was orchestrated by God so that salvation and the church would come. All things fall under the authority of God. He is in complete control. Why is that important to remember? 
Over the past six months, we have been forced to grapple with the sovereignty of God. It has been a year. And over and over, we're reminded that God is in control. He's not left his throne. We sang that this morning. In the good times and bad, he's on his throne. He's God alone. We've been forced to grapple this. Does he actually control everything? What about the politicians' decisions? What about viruses and pandemics? What about finances and jobs? What about decisions, good or bad, made by leadership or by us? We're reminded this is God's doing. God has not lost control. So rest in the sovereignty of God. Find freedom in his hands. But not only are we to rest in God's sovereignty, finally we note, God demands our worship. Verse 11 says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The word marvelous means wonderful, incomprehensible in our eyes. God's sovereign actions demand our worship. Even the incomprehensible actions, like allowing the prophets and his son to be abused and killed, are a part of the glorious sovereign plan of God. And it demands our worship. You know, so often as we face the prospects of our world today, we respond with worry or frustration or even anger. Perhaps you're worried about injustice. Perhaps you're worried about the direction of our country. Perhaps you're worried about your own personal health. Perhaps you're worried about your finances. Perhaps you're worried about your rights. Perhaps you're worried about your children or grandchildren. In all of these challenges, we are reminded that we ought to worship. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But in order for us to worship, we need to recognize the bigger picture. We need to look at eternity. What is the this the Lord has done? He has procured our souls. The Lord is coming back. He's established a kingdom. It will be made right. He will accomplish his purposes. So let's rest in him. He'll care for us. He'll provide for us. He'll be our refuge. So worship him. In the midst of everything that's happened, while we participate in the political actions and, and fulfill our duties, we ought to respond differently to the challenges that we face than the average person. Because we serve a different kingdom. And so we ought to be marked by peace. We ought to be marked by grace. We ought to be marked by love. And a trust in a sovereign God. He will care for us. He will provide for us. 
He will be our refuge. So when the hour is dark, worship God. Look at him. The story of the Bible is the incredible story of Jesus. From the very first chapter, when man is created and marriage is implemented, a picture of Christ in the church. Through the fall and the promise of the seed. To the saving of Noah in the ark through a flood. To the choosing of Abraham and a people for his work. To the prophets calling for repentance and pointing to Christ. To Christ himself through the gospels. And finally to the church culminating in the kingdom of God. It is all about Jesus. It's about his incredible gift of salvation. In these dark and confusing times, just remember it's all about Jesus. Your life, your actions, every aspect of history. It's about Jesus. It's his story. It's his work. And it's marvelous in our eyes. So don't lose sight. Don't lose heart. Don't get dissuaded by this culture and the reactions of all those around us. Have an eternal viewpoint. Turn to him, trust him, and follow his word. Let us carry this incredible news that Christ came to save sinners. That's the message our world needs today. That's the message our world is primed for today. It's in chaos. People are fearful. They need that answer. Jesus is king and he will reign for eternity and it is glorious. So what? I challenge you with three things. Number one, return to God. He's long-suffering, so return to him. You might say, Pastor, I've drifted. Not where I should be. Today's the day. Return to God. He is long-suffering. Number two, trust God. He's sovereign. As you look at your paycheck, your bank account, as you go to the doctor, as you watch the news, as you open up social media, as you live your life, trust God. He's sovereign. You know, 2020 might have been a surprise to all of us, but it was not a surprise to God. Before time began, he knew what was going to happen. He ordained what was going to happen, and he will use it for his glory. So trust him. And number three, worship him. He's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. Even when we can't see what he's doing, even when we question what he's doing, Trust him and worship him, for he is good. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you that you are an amazing God. That you are long-suffering to us. Even when we abuse your grace and those you have sent to us, you continue to send us grace. You continue to work and pursue us. Lord, help us to turn to you. We thank you that you are sovereign. That nothing is beyond your control. We thank you that you have given us the privilege of being a part of your kingdom that we might worship you. 
So God, help us to seek you in all things, to make you look as good as you really are, to live like Christians, that it will be evident to the world around us that we are different. Not because we're obnoxious or rude or self-centered, but because we are gracious and Christ-like in the way that we live. May you receive all the honor and the glory, both now and forever. In Jesus' name.